take a minute and pray together as a way to say before God that we, uh, we don't take anything for granted when we open the Bible. We need him to renew our hearts and minds as Joshua reminded us earlier. Let's pray. Lord, we were, some of us in other places, a few here on the stage were singing, come and make all things new. All of us are now praying that. Making all things new means that you would make our hearts new. Um, we were made to be completely shaped to the image of Jesus. We have distorted our own hearts by worshiping gods other than you, by, by putting ourselves in control of our decision-making rather than listening to you by sinning against you. And so we need to be remade, reshaped in the image of Jesus. Would you do that? As we hear your word now, we pray in his name, amen. So uh, we are several weeks into what a team of us are calling the Philemon Project, uh, a group of us working together over several months. We're using the New Testament letter to Philemon. It's written by the Apostle Paul applying the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to a relationship between a man named Onesimus, who is a slave. He is returning to the household of Philemon, the master. And this little book of Philemon applies the gospel of Jesus to that relationship. And so today we're asking something about context. Last week, Thurman Williams preached for us and he talked about what does the Old Testament have to say about slavery? That, that's part of the context against which we read this little letter of Philemon in the New Testament. And today we're going to ask the question, what does the New Testament have to say about this topic? Because that too is important context for how we understand the book of Philemon, what it said in the first century about how the gospel would apply to slavery what it would say in the 21st century about how the gospel applies to all kinds of broken relationships in our own world and broken systems as well. I want to start today with a true story about Howard. Howard was good at reading. His grandmother asked him to read to him frequently. So several times a week, Howard would read the Bible out loud to his grandmother. And um, he noticed a pattern. He noticed that she often had him read from the Psalms and sometimes, uh, many times from the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Sometimes she would have him read from the book of 1 Corinthians, this chapter 13 that talks about love. But he noticed a pattern. She never asked him to read anything else from the 13 letters written by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. First Corinthians every once in a while. Psalms a lot. Isaiah a lot. The prophets a lot. Genesis, Deuteronomy, Exodus a lot. But one day he worked up the courage to ask her, why is it that you only have me read this one chapter from Paul's letters and no others? And, and these were her words. She spoke of a time when she was enslaved. And she said that her master would several times a year have a white pastor come to preach to the slaves. And then I'll read, I'll read this in, in her words. At least three or four times a year, he, this pastor, used as a text, slaves be obedient to your masters as unto Christ, from Ephesians chapter 6. Then he would go on to show how it was God's will that we were slaves and how if we were good and happy slaves, God would bless us. And these are her words. I promised my maker that if I ever learned to read and if freedom ever came, I would not read that part of the Bible. It's a true story. Howard is a man named Howard Thurman, who's a pastor and civil rights leader here in the United States. And 
These are the words of his grandmother. And it makes us ask the question, was that, was that preacher right? Was he using the Bible in the right way when he read these words from the book of Ephesians and then said, it is God's will that you be a good and happy slave? Should people be afraid of the Bible because they're afraid that that's the right way to use it? I want to say today the answer is no, that is not the right way to use the Bible. Those words are in the Bible, but they're set in a context that we will unpack today. So before we leave the room today, my goal would be that not only you understand no, the Bible doesn't endorse slavery, and that is not the right way to use any of the words of the Bible, but I want you to understand how do we know that? How do we know? How do we know that the Bible itself doesn't intend to be used in the way that it was used in the life of Howard's grandmother? So we're going to start where we need to start, which is hearing the words of Scripture. So we're going to hear reading from Ephesians, first from chapter 4 and then chapter 6. The scripture reading this morning is from Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, and 6, 5 through 9. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. More than enough. Three words, more than enough. If you were with us in our seminar earlier this morning on Zoom, you heard those words before. I'll repeat them in their context. This is from a... Um, uh, a writer named Esau Macaulay. He's a New Testament professor at Wheaton College, Anglican priest, and uh, he's written a book called Reading While Black that I highly recommend. And, and he says in that book that on the first read, on the first read, you might walk away from the New Testament a little bit disappointed because the New Testament doesn't appear to say everything that we would want it to say about slavery in exactly the way we would wish it would say it. This quote comes from a chapter in his book about slavery. And, and then he goes on to say this, that, that here is the, the crucial thing. The Bible says more than enough. Okay, that, that, that's not my saying it. This is a black Christian saying if we will listen to everything that Scripture has to say, we won't walk away disappointed. It says more than enough. I want to make that case today. I'm super excited to do this. Um, Esau and I, we haven't ever met, but I think we might be twins, kind of, um, because we, we both 
don't quite know whether we're pastor or professor. Um, we, we both have PhDs in New Testament studies from Scottish universities. And everything he says about the Bible and slavery, these are conclusions that I've come to over 25 years of studying this topic. I can't wait to meet this guy one day. Um, so we're going to make the case more than enough. And we're going to do it starting right here. We're going to start with this thought, a Christ-centered community. Donna earlier read for us from Ephesians chapter 4 about unity and love. In Ephesians chapter 6, words addressed to a relationship that was unfortunately very common in first century Roman households, that between slaves and master. And, uh, but that's part of a bigger context. It's part of the context of the book of Ephesians as a whole. And if you were to read these six chapters written by the Apostle Paul, you read in chapters 1 through 3 a summary of the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. Listen to a couple of verses from chapter 1 just, just as a summary of, of what this says. In him, Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. Jesus has riches and he gives them away to those who have nothing, who have only need. And then verse 10 goes on to say this, that in Christ God has a plan that in the fullness of time, to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Everything is going to be redeemed and brought under the goodness of Christ. This is the gospel. And then when we come to chapter 4, after three chapters of talking about Christ and what he's doing to bring all things under his redeeming work, we have this word, therefore, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, because of everything we've been saying in the first three chapters about Jesus, therefore, I want to urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Be part of a community that looks like this, verses 2 through 6 of Ephesians 4. A community that's filled with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Holy Spirit in the bond of peace. Therefore, in light of everything that Jesus is and has done, chapters 1 through 3, live like this. Verse 4 tells us of chapter 4. Live as though there is only one body and one Holy Spirit. You are all called to the one hope that belongs to your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over everyone and through all things and in all. That's the context. That's the kind of community shaped around Christ that we are called to be that all believers in Jesus have always been called to be. And we have to ask the question, can slavery be consistent with that kind of Christ-centered community? If we live out humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, unity, one body, if we live out a community where there is only one person acknowledged as Lord, another way to translate that Greek word is master, where there's only one rightful Lord and master, where we all share one faith, there is only one baptism, there is one God who is the father of all who put their faith in Jesus. Part of what the New Testament says is that we are called to be a Christ-centered community and slavery is ultimately incompatible with a community that's centered around Christ. I, I don't want to be making this up. Right? I, I want to be following what Scripture 
says. And so we start there. We are called to be a Christ-centered community. Now, some of you might be saying, ah, but why talk so much about slavery? Because see, that's a thing from the past. Well, here's what I wanna say, two-fold response. Before this sermon is over, we will break down some of the patterns involved in slavery that still continue today, even when slavery isn't practiced. And those are very much relevant for all of us, no matter when we live or where we live. Secondly, I wanna say, why does a Christian like Esau Macaulay writing a book today devote a whole chapter to the issue of slavery? You see, for, for many black Christians, today, these are not issues of the far past. Asking this kind of question matters for right now. It matters for us today. And it matters that in town becomes the kind of church where we say Christ-centered community, when we live it outright, will totally undermine everything that slavery represents. And it's worth us saying that even today. All right, that's Esau Macaulay says. The Bible says more than enough. What does it say? Well, it it talks about Christ-centered community. It It also presents to us a significant silence. If you read Ephesians chapters five and six, so one through three, who is Christ? What has he done? Chapter four, what does this Christ-centered community start to look like in terms of unity and love and uh, oneness among all who belong to one Lord, sharing one faith under one God and Father? And, And then that starts to be applied to different relationships in the household. And so you come in Ephesians chapter five to the relationship between wives and husbands. And as the Apostle Paul describes that relationship, he, uh, he quotes from the Old Testament, right? So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a quotation from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. He moves on to talk about another relationship, a relationship bet- between children and parents. And in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, quotes from the Old Testament. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. He's quoting from, from Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, one of the Ten Commandments. And then he comes to another relationship common in households in the first century in the Roman Empire, that between slaves and masters. And this is when we encounter the significant silence. There's no quotation from the Old Testament here. Why? Well, that's a good question. Why? Is it because the Old Testament had nothing to say about the topic? No, the Old Testament had a lot to say about the topic. Well. Well, if you're addressing these relationships and you're saying the Old Testament has something to speak and the Old Testament had something to say about this, but you didn't quote it, why? In the study that I've done, the the best explanation is this. If you look at Genesis chapters 1 and 2, before human rebellion came into God's good world. Two of these three relationships existed. Husband and wife relationship existed before human sin came into God's good world. Parent-child relationship. God said, be fruitful and multiply. That was to be part of God's good creation. But the thought of enslaving another person and claiming to be their owner and master. Well, that was not part of God's good creation. I'm convinced that the Apostle Paul remains silent here. He doesn't quote the Old Testament when he's talking about slaves and masters because he wants 
this third relationship to be viewed through a different lens. When I'm talking about these relationships, I'm talking about God's good purposes in the world He's created. And when I talk about this third relationship, it's a distortion of God's good purposes in creation. The Bible says more than enough. It talks about a Christ-centered community. It shows us this significant silence that tells us there is something going on with this relationship as outside of God's purposes in the good world that he made. We're talking about New Testament context for interpreting this little letter of Philemon and what it has to say about a master and a slave and implications for us today. Part of that context is what I'll call a singular exception. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you were ever to uh, read through this chapter, you would, you would notice that there's a, there's a pattern here. The Apostle Paul is talking to Christians in Corinth who have become convinced that because we've been made new in Jesus, everything about our life needs to radically change. Right, Paul? And so they're saying things like, if we're married to one another and we're having sex with each other, we need to stop, right? And if I'm married, I should go get a divorce, right? Because things have to radically change. Or if I'm single, I need to go out and get married, right? Or, or if, if I come from a Jewish background and I've been living in such a way that people can see that my culture and background are Jewish, I should hide that now, right? Or I, I'm, I come from a Greek background or a Roman one. I don't come from a Jewish background. I, that should change, right? I should go get circumcised and start living in a way that people can see that I'm not from my Greek or Roman background, right? And the Apostle Paul is like, no, 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 put on the brakes. <laughs> no. And, and he has to argue again and again and again through all these different relationships to say, remain in the condition you were in when you were called. He says that twice in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 21. He says, uh, verse 20, sorry. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. He repeats it again in verse 24. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Hey, if you were married, stay married. If you were single, you don't have to rush out and get married just because you're a Christian. It's okay. If you're married and you're acting like married people do, physical intimacy, that's a good thing. And, and if you're Jewish and people can tell you're Jewish and you come from a Jewish background and now you have faith in Jesus, it's okay to still live like somebody who comes from Jewish culture and background. And if not, you don't have to rush out and get circumcised. It's okay. He says that over and over and over again with one singular exception. Slavery. This is what he says to slaves. Verse 21. If you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Verse 23. You were bought with a price by Jesus. Do not become slaves of men. Do you see the pattern? All of these things are consistent with what God is doing in redemption. God's work of redemption is not going to, to destroy marriage. So if you're married, you don't have to run out and get a divorce. God's purpose in redemption is not going to require marriage. So if you're single, you don't have to run out and get married. God's purpose in redemption is not going to abandon people who grew up as part of the Jewish culture. So you don't have to hide that. And God's purpose in saving people is not going to be limited to those who come from Jewish culture. So you don't have to rush out and get circumcised. The one place where he says, if you have a chance to change this, change it, is slavery. Why? Because that is not consistent with what God is doing in the work of redemption. If you have a chance to get free, take it. If you're free, don't become the slave of a human being. You see, 
These are the reasons why I would say, if I had opportunity, to Howard's grandmother, that preacher was not using the Bible in the right way. He quoted Ephesians chapter 6, but not in light of this broader context that says we're called to be part of a Christ-centered community. And then when, when the Apostle Paul has the opportunity to make a relationship look like it's part of God's purposes in creation, he doesn't. And when he has the opportunity to talk about various circumstances that are consistent with what God is doing in the work of redemption through Christ, he does, but when he comes to slavery, he treats it differently. He says, no, if you can gain your freedom, make the most of that opportunity. Why? Slavery is a distortion of God's work in redemption. The Bible says more than enough. The Bible talks about a mistaken assumption. Here we're going to go sit at the feet of Jesus for a minute. Matthew chapter 19. This text isn't about slavery, but it has implications for how we think about slavery. Here Jesus is talking about divorce because some Pharisees have come to him and they have said, Hey, Jesus, our teachers say that it's lawful to divorce your wife for any old reason you choose. If you don't like her cooking, you can just send her away. Hey, Jesus, is it lawful to divorce your wife for this kind of reason? Putting him on the spot, he's going to have to disagree with some of the best thinkers of his day. And what does Jesus say? Matthew 19, verse uh, Three picks up this conversation. Jesus immediately quotes from Genesis. Haven't you read the Bible? Haven't you read that, you know, a man shall leave his father and mother and they shall become one flesh? So what God has joined together is one flesh. Don't let anyone separate. And they said to him, so, so why did Moses command a person to give a certificate of divorce to his wife and send her away? Mr. Did you read your Bible? Yes, we read our Bible. We can throw the Bible back in your face, Jesus. Moses commanded us, so it's okay. See, the Bible talks about divorce, so divorce is good, right, Jesus? And so since divorce is good, then, then, then I can treat my wife any old way I please, including sending her away for whatever reason, whenever I choose, right? And Jesus says this, Matthew 19, 8, he said to them, is because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, <laughs> whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The Bible gives a few reasons why divorce would be legitimate. The Bible does not talk about divorce because divorce is a good thing. The Bible does not talk about divorce because men should be able to treat their wives however they please. Jesus says that is a mistaken assumption. Do not assume that because Scripture addresses something, God endorses it. I'm going to read for you. Another quote from Esau Macaulay, some passages in the Bible accept the world as broken and attempt to limit the damage we do to one another. Don't assume that because the Bible talks about something, God endorses it. That's the assumption that the Pharisees were making. Moses commanded it. So it's good, right? And Jesus says, it was not so from the beginning. It's part of what's broken about this world. And so Moses said, give her a certificate of divorce so that everyone will know she's free to remarry so that you can't keep your wife dangling on a string and marry someone else in your polygamous culture. God was trying to limit the damage that you're doing to other people. He was not endorsing this as good. And in the same way, doesn't the Bible talk about slavery? It does. 
Does that mean the Bible endorses slavery? It does not. Do not make that assumption. That is a mistaken assumption. When the Bible talks about slavery, it's talking about a relationship in which human beings damage one another. And it's limiting the damage that we might do. It is not expressing God's ideal. When the Bible talks about slavery, it's talking about something that's a result of the hardened human heart and that damage must be undone. Okay, let's talk about the master's motivations. The Bible says more than enough for us to know that all forms of exploiting human beings are wrong, including slavery. We've been making that case. We've talked about a Christ-centered community. We've talked about um, what it would mean to uh, interpret the significant silence of Ephesians 5 and 6. We've talked about what it would mean to understand this, this very singular exception that occurs in 1 Corinthians 7. When addressing the topic of slavery, we've talked about the mistaken assumption that we can make. Let's talk now about the master's motivations. This will bring us back to where we started, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 4 and 9, especially, I want us to look at. And um, first we've got to pause and think about Star Wars for a minute because it's just kind of always good to do that. So... Um, Many of you will recognize that as Boba Fett's ship, and if you don't, then um, clearly you don't spend much time in the Aegon household. And that thing behind it, filling up the screen, is called a seismic charge. And uh, when Boba Fett sets off one of these, right, this big bright flash fills the whole screen, and it shakes everything. And we're about, we're about to have that experience because in the first century, understanding what is said here to slaves and to masters is like the gospel setting off those seismic charges that shake everything. It may be hard for us to hear it, right? Just as you may not instantly recognize this picture if you didn't spend much time in the Aegon context. And if you don't come from a first century context, you may not hear how these words in Ephesians chapter 6 shake everything. So let's take a minute and feel that. Let's start here. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 9 says that Jesus is the master of everything. He is the Lord. He is, he is the ruler. It is his will that defines the life of those who belong to him. Right? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9. Masters, stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. Jesus is the real master. He is the real Lord, and what we want is for the motivations of our hearts to be shaped by his heart. And in his kingdom, all the things that motivate slavery are destroyed. So in my study, I've come across this constellation of four, four motivations across history and across culture and throughout the centuries for owning slaves. And the first one is pride, a desire for one group of people to show their superiority over another group of people. What does the gospel of Jesus Christ do to that motivation in the human heart? Well, let's go back to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. It talks about humility and gentleness and love and unity. There is no place for that motivator in the Christian community or in the Christian life anymore. That kind of desire to show we are superior. We won the war against your people, so we're enslaving you. You're in debt, and we are rich. You had to sell yourself into slavery. See, we are the haves, and you're the have-not. 
or in the American South. We are of the supreme race. You are of the inferior race. However it shows up in whatever century or culture, it's rooted in pride and the gospel says, no, no, no. And so we come to Ephesians chapter 6 and we come to verse 5. I think I said verse 4 on a previous slide. That's wrong. And verse 5 says, slaves. The whole world just shook. You know why? In Greek society, when you talk about how to manage a household, you don't address slaves. They're never going to be reading it. It's only the owners who are going to read it. These words are going to be read out loud in a church setting like this. Everyone's going to hear it. And Jesus is saying, Paul, I want you to tell everyone that the slaves in this room belong to my church just as much as anyone else in the room. Slavery hasn't yet been abolished in the Roman Empire. That hasn't happened. But man, something big just happened. Not only are slaves addressed like they fully belong to the church, they're addressed first. Wait a minute. If we were really just following the patterns of society, wouldn't we start with the masters first and then put the slaves in their place? (laughs) The gospel doesn't put people in their place like that. Wives are spoken of first and then husbands. Children are addressed before parents. Slaves and then masters, the gospel is turning these motivations of pride upside down and inside out. Here is what um, slavery is like across the centuries. This comes, quote comes from a scholar, a German-British scholar. You know he's uh, British because he got three first initials, T-E-J, right? Thomas Ernst Josef Wiedemann, he's a German-British guy. He writes a lot of research on slavery across the centuries and cultures. And he says this, in the first century, it was a world in which the citizen was at the center of human activity and slaves, slavery represented the opposite pole of minimum participation in humanity. And the slave came to symbolize the boundary of social existence. In that kind of world, the gospel of Jesus says, slaves belong in the church just as much as anybody else. Not because slavery belongs in the church, but because the gospel is going to undermine and destroy this motivation of proving superiority over other groups of people. We're at the center and you're on the margins. The gospel destroys that. There's another motivation for slavery across the centuries. It's not pride but power, a desire to treat other people the way we want without accountability. This is why it's hard to study slavery in the modern world because technically slavery is illegal in the modern world, so it's hard to study it now because it stays in the shadows. Why? Because no one wants to be accountable for how they're treating other people. It's one of the challenges of um, some of the literature I'm reading about modern slavery is uh, it's hard to get people to take your numbers seriously because they're estimates. Because no one is standing up and saying, yeah, what I'm doing is illegal and, and I'd rather now do it in a way that I'm accountable to the law. No, slavery is always motivated by this desire to treat other people the way we please with no accountability. And listen, here's what the gospel is going to do to that, right? Masters, do the same to them. Masters, you are accountable to Jesus. Stop your threatening. You do not get to treat people the way you want. Stop. You are accountable to Jesus 
who is their master and yours, and with him there is no partiality. Wait a minute. You mean in a Christian church, in a worship service, some people would be made to feel a bit uncomfortable and squirmy that something about their life might need to be changed? Yeah. (laughs) Because everything your culture is telling you in the first century is you own this person. You have a right to treat them however you please, and you don't have to answer to anyone. But Jesus says, not on my watch. That is not how my people live. No one will ever have the freedom to exercise power over another as though they are unaccountable. In my church, things will be different. So masters, your relationship to your slaves is going to be governed by me from now on, not by Roman law, not by custom or tradition, not by your personal preferences, not even by the fear of what would change if we started to live this out. It will be governed by me. I am the Lord Jesus. I am bringing redemption into this world. That even helps us deal with some of the details of verse 5 and what it says about earthly masters, literally says masters according to the flesh. Another time we can look at, at how that clearly signals that the structures of slavery are going to perish under the reign of Jesus. That language, according to the flesh, And the letters of Paul always points to something that's contradictory to the gospel and the spirit. It points to something that is tragically incomplete and that when the gospel has its way, will fade out of existence. But we don't have time to prove all of that right now, so I'm just going to say it and you can ask me about it later. What's another motivation for owning slaves? Money. Money a desire to secure economic benefit for yourself without having to provide that benefit for the other person. Cheap labor, right? About money. I want to get richer without having to make you richer. So, a primary motivator for slavery. But we read earlier about how the gospel isn't really about that, is it? We read earlier about Jesus who possesses riches of grace and lavishes those upon the needy. So apparently the gospel is about generosity, not about exploiting someone else so that you can become more wealthy while they suffer. Hmm. Context. Whatever Ephesians 6 says about slaves and masters, it doesn't say that it's okay to exploit someone else so that you can be more wealthy. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, even says this Hey, if someone is stealing, they should no longer steal. Well, okay, what should we do instead? Rather, let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Hey, master, you're stealing. You're stealing that person's labor by letting them work hard and not giving them anything in return. That's theft. And the gospel instead creates a community where we want, we want to be able to share generously with people who are in need. Do you see how the gospel is going to undermine all of these motivators for owning slaves? And the, the last is very unpleasant, but it's real. And the gospel speaks about the reality of a broken world. Can I get a pass? I've been, I've been studying for this sermon for 25 years. It's, it's long, I know. It's also long overdue. I, I, 
Why is it? Why have we not said these things this clearly before? One of the main motivators for owning slaves in any century, any culture, is a desire to demand pleasure from another person anytime, any way you please, outside of any relational commitment to that person. It's one of the most brutal aspects of slavery in the U.S. South. It is one of the most brutal aspects of modern slavery and sex trafficking. And it was a reality in the days of the New Testament. You may have heard before that in the New Testament, slavery was much more pleasant. I don't think that's true. Oh, there were exceptions to some of the brutal treatment. But in the first century world, People often did all that they could to escape slavery, even if it meant they didn't know where their next meal was coming from. Why would you do that? Well, one reason is you were constantly subject to mistreatment sexually. Male, female, didn't matter. Older men had their beards plucked out, their bodies shaved so that they would look like younger boys and seem more attractive to the master and the master's friends? What does the gospel say about this? Well, let's look at the context. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, the desire to have something that God has not given you must not even be named among you. Can you imagine being a first century slave owner and sitting there and hearing all of this? Hearing that the, that the only right context for a one flesh union with another human being is a marriage between a husband and a wife? Suddenly, it's like you're going, wait a minute. I can't treat my slaves however I want to and get away with it. I, 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 can't, I can't have sex with all, any of my slaves whenever I want. I, I have to stop doing that ever, never again. I, I can't treat my slaves in a way that shows that I'm superior to them. I can't even exploit their labor to, so, that, so that I can maintain my standard of living. Well, what's the point in owning slaves? Yeah, exactly. That's, that's the point. The gospel destroys every motivation for slavery. In a Christ-centered community, all of these things will be reversed and we become a community of humility and accountability before Jesus. Generosity, our approach to sexuality, starts with a commitment to respect one another and to respect one another's bodies. Why? Because Jesus came into this world to create a new kind of community. He came into this world to be treated like a sinner so that sin wouldn't define our destiny. He came into this world to be treated unjustly so that injustice would not define our identity. He came into this world to be treated like a slave, dying a slave's death on a Roman cross so that slavery would not define our community. He came to give himself out of love and humility and self-sacrifice so that those would be the things that define our relationship with God and our relationship with each other and our relationship with our neighbors. I'm going to close with a story about two women named Felicitas and Perpetua, Felicity in English. These are two women from North Africa who died in the year 203. Felicity was enslaved to Perpetua. Felicity had become a Christian. Slaves fully belonged to the people of God. She shared her faith in Jesus with her master according to the flesh, to use the vocabulary of Ephesians 6, 5, Perpetua. Perpetua became a Christian 
Together, the two of them were encouraged to renounce their uh, faith in Jesus by making a sacrifice to honor the Roman emperor to show that they were under his authority. They refused to do this, and they were sentenced along with several other people to be thrown to wild animals on the emperor's birthday as a celebration, even though Perpetua was nursing an infant child and Felicity was eight months pregnant when they were imprisoned. Here's what one writer says about what happened on the day that they died. On the day of their martyrdom, the two women walked calmly out into the arena hand in hand. And these are his words. This is an author named Bruce Milne. In that moment, in the name of Jesus Christ, slavery was effectively dead. Embodied in their act of supreme courage was the announcement of a new way of existing, a new way of being human, a new humanity. Here was a new order in which men and women and children were all equally free and equally dignified, no matter how they might be viewed and treated within a given political or social system. He closes by quoting from Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, in Christ there is neither slave nor free. Does the gospel of Jesus Christ have enough power to change human hearts so that we're no longer motivated by pride, by power, by money, by sexual pleasure at another's expense? Does the gospel of Jesus Christ have enough power to destroy slavery and every form of human exploitation forever? The answer is yes more than enough. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, drive deep into our hearts a love for your word, a love for everything that it tells us about you. Drive deep into our hearts the assurance that if we have not been listening well to what your word says, you can redeem and renew Repentance is a gift from you, and we can grow because of your kindness and mercy. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you. We pray in your name. Amen.